The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. All right, we have uh, Judges 4, 1 through 16 today. This is entitled Deborah, Judge of Israel, Part 1. Now, while we're going through this first, this part one of two, from Judges 4, but while we're going through it, and I will admit this right now, is that part two, the typology is going to be complicated. If you don't understand it, the main thing what I would ask you to do is try to think of who Deborah is picturing. It's either a person, a place, a thing, a moment in time, something that Deborah is picturing. And if you can figure that out while we're going through these verses, the rest of the passage, all the complicated nature of what we're being shown will be evident. Okay, that's the main thing. Deborah is picturing something in redemptive history. So, we're in uh, Judges 4, 1 through 16. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Haroshet Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Za'anaim, which is beside Kadesh. 
and they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Haroshet Hagoim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots of the army as far as Haroshet Hagoim, and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. And I know that was a ton of verses. We normally wouldn't do that many, but it'll go quickly. The Bible is comprised of many types of literature. Each has its own special place and purpose. Some have overlapping purposes, as we have seen many times. One type of literature is that of prophecy. Quite often, prophetic literature is based upon spoken utterances that were written down. It is rare but not unheard of for women to prophesy in Scripture. But just like their male counterparts, their words have been recorded, and they are a valuable part of this sacred word. Peter makes a general statement concerning prophecy and the prophetic word rendering in the masculine. But women such as Deborah are implicitly included in his words. He says from 2 Peter 1, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In our verses today, we will see that Deborah means be. But there is more to the meaning of the name than what is literal, as will be seen when we get there. The B, for example, has a host of information behind it that can be drawn out of the natural world and from Scripture. Because it is so interesting, I will include the comments of Avarim concerning the name of Deborah. Please enjoy their thoughts. They're doing an analysis of the name of Deborah, and then they included this in that analysis. Tradition. And most Bible commentators and translators, including Jones's Dictionary of Old Testament Proper Names, assume that the B was known after a derivation of the verb davar, meaning to speak, because of the sound a bee makes when it flies. This is highly unlikely for two reasons. First, the bee is not the only creature that makes a sound or even buzzes. Calling a bee, but no other insect a talker, would show an imprecision that is ultimately foreign to the Hebrew language. Secondly, even in Bible times, the bee was culturally defined as a producer of honey. Honey was the only available sweetener in those days, and honey was recognized as a great source of strength, as in 1 Samuel 14, where milk is compared to the initial nutrition of a new believer, 1 Peter 2, honey serves the diehards. Hence, Canaan was known as the land flowing with milk and honey. That's Exodus 3, 8, and so on. And the judgments of the Lord, as well as his words, were deemed sweeter than honey. King David reckoned unity in the house of the Lord sweet. Ezekiel tastes a scroll that was given to him by the word of God, and it tastes sweet as honey. And the same happens to John the Revelator. Another prominent insect in the Bible is the fly, which also buzzes. The Hebrew word for fly is zevuv, which serves a segment of the name Beelzebub, meaning Lord of the Flies. The difference between the kingdom of God and whatever dumb of Satan shows clearly in the difference between the bee and the fly. Bees have a house and operate within a complex colony. Bees like flowers and help them reproduce, make honey, speak a language, care for offspring, and are armed. Flies are homeless, aren't social, don't cooperate, like dung and decaying flesh, make nothing, speak no language, don't care for their offspring, and are not armed. Also note that bees can only function as a society. There is no such thing as a solitary bee, which makes honey on its own out of the sheer perfection of its private brilliance. Instead, the bee is a creature that consists of countless many individuals who venture about their world and do their little ordinary thing without having much sense of any difference between them 
and the whole hive. Said otherwise, bees neither have Nobel Prizes nor Super Bee comic strips, nor do they imagine to stand on the shoulder of giants. When you encounter some part of the created order in the Bible, think about why it's mentioned. The intricacy of it in the natural world will be used in Scripture to teach us greater spiritual truths. Such wonderful things as the bee are to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is to go or not to go. It's verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The New King James Version turns the clauses around, thus making it hard to evaluate what is written. Rather, the words read in the following order. I'm going to read one clause at a time in order. The first clause, and added sons Israel to do the evil. It is as if there's a divine scale or counter being added to with every act of evil of Israel. As has already been seen, it isn't just evil they are doing, but the evil. It is a personal offense against God, collectively committed by the people as a whole, as indicated by the words, sons Israel. As there is no king responsible for the people, it is attributed to the people in an all-encompassing way. Further, this is committed be'ene Yehovah, in eyes Yehovah. The evil is an offense done openly, almost mocking or challenging the authority of the Lord. It is as if the people are willingly testing him to see what he could do about it. It's not at all unlike the attitude of those on the left in the world today. They mock God through their open defiance of him as if they are purposefully trying to elicit a response. When none comes, they simply do more evil to test him further. With this condition raging among the people, the verse ends with ve'ehud met and Ehud died. Of these words, Adam Clark says, why not when Shamgar was dead? Does this not intimate that Shamgar was not reckoned in the number of the judges? Shamgar was noted in the last verse of chapter 3. It said there, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. As was explained, the words imply that Shamgar was a contemporary of Ehud. He may have arisen after Ehud, but still during the time of Ehud. As noted in the first judge's sermon, the chronology of the judges, according to Paul's words of Acts 13.20, demands that there are times when the various judges overlap. This is probably one of those instances. Ehud was the main judge at the time, but Shamgar was probably appointed as a judge to deal with the Philistines during that same period. Further, unlike so many translations, which are only further marred by the New King James Version by reversing the clauses of this verse, it does not say when, now, after, and so on in relation to Ehud's death. Again, read the entire verse, and added, sons Israel, to do the evil in eyes Jehovah, and Ehud died. There's no reason to assume that the evil began after the death of Ehud. They were doing the evil in the eyes of the Lord in verse 312. The Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against them, verse 312 again. They cried out to the Lord for deliverance, 315. The Lord raised up Ehud to deliver them, 315. They saw the deliverance of the Lord through Ehud, and Ehud declared that it was the Lord who delivered them, 328. And yet, Israel added to the evil in his eyes, most likely during the time of Ehud. It's said in chapter 3 that Moab was subdued under the hand of Israel, and it had rest for 80 years. That does not mean that the people were obedient during those years, but that there was no war during them. Only after saying that Israel added to the evil, it then says, and Ehud died. It is as if Israel said, how do we really know that the Lord did this? Let's test it and see. And so they added to the evil. Verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And sold them Jehovah in hand, Jabin, king Canaan. 
As noted in chapter 2, the idea of selling someone is not for profit. Rather, it is that the Lord handed them over to their enemies as if they were property to be disposed of. Here, I don't want this anymore. You deal with it. The actual sequence is that Israel sold itself to do evil, and therefore the Lord sold them off for what they were worth, meaning nothing. The name Jabin was noted in Joshua chapter 11. Here it said this, And it came to pass when Jabin king of Hatzor heard these things, that he said to Jobab king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Achshaph, and to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain, south of Kinnerot, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. This may be a royal or hereditary name that accompanies the position, kind of like Pharaoh. Thus, it is probably not the same Jabin as before. As for the name Jabin or Yavin, it has to do with discernment, coming from the word bin, meaning to discern. The name means he perceives, he discerns, he understands, the wise, the intelligent, something close to that. Canaan means humiliated, humbled, or even subdued. Of the location of his reign, like in Joshua 11, it says, verse 2 continues, who reigned in Hatzor. The name Hatzor or Hatzor actually has various meanings based on its root, which signifies to begin to cluster or gather. It may mean, because of that, village, trumpet, leak, enclosure, and so on. The city falls within the borders of Naphtali. Verse 2 continues, the commander of his army was Sisera. Vesar Tzavo Sisera, and commander his host Sisera. Of the name Sisera, Abarim says, Forst's Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon to the Old Testament draws toward a foreign word meaning mediator, someone who mediates, and NOBSE study Bible name list reads meditation as well. They then say, to a Hebrew audience, however, the first part of the name Sisera may have reminded of the word sus, meaning swallow or horse. Note that some later versions of Jeremiah 8, 7 indeed use the form sis, sis for sus, okay? The ra part of the name may have sounded as if it came from the verb ra'ah, meaning to look or see. That's all Abarim's evaluation of this, and I agree with it. This is what I was thinking of when I saw it. Sisera, it sounds like a horse. Therefore, they say to a Hebrew audience, the name Sisera may have sounded as something like Kenan Swift or see the horse. Of him, it next says, verse 2 continues, who dwelt in Haroshet Hagoim. There's an emphasis in the words to ensure it is understood that this is referring to Sisera, not Jabin. Vehu Yoshev be Haroshet Hagoim, and he dwelt in Haroshet Hagoim. There's nothing complicated about the words, but there are various ways to translate them. The word Hagoim is the definite article, the, adjoined to the word Goim, which means both Gentiles and nations. Thus, it can be translated any one of these ways correctly. And he dwelt in Haroshet the nations. And he dwelt in Haroshet the Gentiles. And he dwelt in Haroshet the Goyim. And he dwelt in Haroshet Ha-Goyim. And so on. It can go on and on. The first half of the location comes from Haroshet, a carving or a skillful work. The meaning of the location is then carving of the nations or manufactory of the Gentiles. However, Abarim also provides silence of the Gentiles based on a different but associated word. Concerning these possibilities, they then say, since the Bible is not at all interested in political goings-on and solely in the evolution of wisdom, that is, science and technology of all sorts, this place called Haroshet Hagoim obviously embodied the strength and validity of systems of learning that were not part of Israel. They're the Gentiles, but there's something going on there. As for what happened to Israel, once they came under the yoke of their afflictors, it says, verse 3, then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, Va Yitzaku bene Yisrael el Yehovah, and cried sons Israel unto Yehovah. It is ironic that Israel had destroyed Jabin king of Hatzor and burned the city with fire, but now Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, is afflicting Israel. 
Whether this was the same location that was rebuilt or another given the same name while Israel was fritting away its inheritance, the defeated line of Jabin was rebuilding and preparing for revenge upon the afflictors of his people. When he was in control, Israel finally woke up and cried out to the Lord. Verse 3 continues, For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. Ki tesha meot rechev barzel lo. For 900 chariot iron to him. The name Jabin is inserted here, probably incorrectly, based on the emphasis provided in the coming clause. This seems to be referring to the army under Sisera. It is a vast-sized chariot force. It is likely that these carried size on their sides that were fashioned to the axles. When they ran through the ranks of men that they faced, the horses would trample on some, the wheels would crush others, and the size would hack up others. They were a fearsome thing to fight against on smooth, open plains. As for the number, it is a multiple of nine and ten. Nine is akin to the number six, six being the sum of its factors. Three times three equals nine, and three plus three equals six. And is thus significant of the end of man and the summation of all man's works. Nine is, therefore, according to Bollinger, the number of finality or judgment. Ten signifies completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything, is therefore the ever-present signification of the number ten. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. Verse three continues, and for twenty years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. There's an emphasis on the individual, and the word translated as harshly is a noun, not an adverb. Vehu lachatz et bene Yisrael esrim shana, and he oppressed sons Israel in vehemence twenty years. Here's a new word, choska. It is a noun signifying vehemence. In Exodus 3, 9, using the same word translated as oppressed, it noted that the Egyptians oppressed Israel. However, Sisera is said to oppress Israel in vehemence. They failed to learn the lesson of Egypt, and so the Lord sold them to someone even more determined to oppress them in their own land. This went on for 20 years. I was at the bank a couple days ago, and the girl was talking about something, and uh, we were she we were talking about names of children because of the grandbaby we just had. Anyway, um, we got into uh, talking about something, and uh, she brought up grace, and I said, "Oh, in the Bible, that's the number five. Anytime you read the number five, you'll see it signifies grace." And I was going through the numbers in the Bible. She was so excited about this. Okay. But what the, the point was that I told her, I said, is when you're reading the Bible, it is always consistent. When you have a 10, it will always have the same signification. When you have five, it will always have, and here we have the number 20. Of this number, Bollinger notes, it is the double of 10 and may in some cases signify its concentrated meaning, but its significance seems rather to be connected with the fact that it is one short of 21. 21 minus one is 20. That is to say, if 21 is the threefold seven and signifies divine three completion as regards spiritual perfection seven, then 20 being one short of 21, it would signify what Dr. Milo Mahan calls expectancy. Verse four, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot. It should be noted that apart from the wicked Athaliah, who stole the throne of Judah for a season until Prime Minister Golda Meir, Deborah was the only woman ever to lead Israel. But a judge exercised more authority than even the modern Prime Minister. Further, she is the only judge until the last judge, Samuel, to be noted as a prophet. As for the verse, the words are abrupt and are poorly rendered by most translations. They say, And Deborah, woman, prophetess, wife, or woman, lapidot. The words are placed together without any connectors to call attention to the unusual occurrence of there being a female in this position. Who or what is Deborah picturing? Keep thinking it through. Most important part of it is what she's picturing. From there, everything else falls into place. The fact that she is a woman is highlighted, even though it is obvious from the context without saying it. It must be observed that Israel was just delivered by a left-handed man, 
a seemingly inferior trait. And now Israel has a female judge, considered even more inferior. Of this, John Lang says that she, a woman, became the center of the people, proves the relaxation of spiritual and manly energy. This is true, but there's more to it than that. Notably, after her, the next judge will be Gideon, which I've already typed this sermon, but here we go. So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But this pattern already started with the first judge, Othniel. He was specifically noted as Caleb's brother, Hakatan, the younger. The word is derived from kut, to feel a loathing. The implication is that the elder is greater and anything less is to be despised. And yet the younger, the lesser, was the first judge. Then there was Ehud, the left-handed. And then Shamgar, son of Anat, or there a stranger, son of affliction. The name itself implies that he was an unlikely candidate to do anything great. The clear point is that the Lord is using what is considered lesser to magnify his glory through the victories that are obtained. As for the name Deborah, it is identical to the word Devorah, a bee. That comes from Devar, to speak. Thus, the name means bee. However, beyond that, it implies speaker or formalizer, as in pronouncing a word. She is next identified as a prophetess. So far in Scripture, only Miriam in Exodus 15.20 has been noted as such. The word prophetess comes from the verb navah, to prophesy. That is ultimately derived from a primitive root signifying to speak or sing by inspiration. She formalizes the word of the Lord for the people as she speaks forth what he has inspired. What is she picturing? Who is she picturing? Keep thinking it through. She is next identified as the wife or a woman of Lapidot. The word Lapidot comes from Lapid, a torch, a lamp, lightning, and so on. That was first used in Genesis 15:17 to describe the burning lamp of the Lord that passed through the divided animals. It also describes the lightnings that flashed at the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. That word then comes from an unused root, probably meaning to shine. What the words are saying is not readily discernible. Is Lapidot a person, a location, or a descriptor? Nobody really knows. So obviously that's not the important point of what the Lord is telling us. Here are some examples. Wife of Lapidot, whose name means torches, lamp. Okay, or woman of a location named torches, or woman of torches, meaning a fiery spirit, or woman of flashes, as in a woman of splendors. All of these have been suggested by both translations and scholars, and so forth. If Lapidot were her husband, it would be normal to identify what tribe he belonged to. None is given. Figuratively, the word eshet is applied to women at times, such as a woman of foolishness in Proverbs 9.13, a woman of contention in Proverbs 21.19, and a woman of valor in Proverbs 31.10, which is speaking of my wife. Therefore, it is no stretch to use a figurative meaning here as well. Of her, it next says, she, verse 4 continues, was judging Israel at that time. She was judging Israel in the time, the it. She was the one who rendered decisions on behalf of the Lord, settled controversies, and so on. However, she will also be the one to bring the afflictor of Israel to destruction, probably because Sisera would not expect a woman to go beyond ministerial duties to those of warfare. Of her duties, it next says, Verse 5, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah. The verb is a participle, vehi yoshevet tachat tomer Deborah, and she would sit under palm Deborah. To sit means in judgment, as in Exodus 18, 13, where it said Moses sat to judge the people. The palm is a symbol of uprightness and righteousness. With these words, one can get the sense of her sitting in the place of righteousness, conveying to the people the formalized word, davar, of the Lord. This was located, verse 5 continues, between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. Ben Haramah uben Bethel Behar Ephraim, between the Ramah and between Bethel in Mount Ephraim. The Ramah means the height or lofty place. 
Bethel means house of God. A mount, a har, is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Ephraim means twice fruitful and also ashes. Verse 5 continues, And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Va'ya'alu elecha b'nei Yisrael la mishpat. And ascended unto her sons Israel to the judgment. To ascend does not necessarily mean in elevation, but in position, such as a subordinate going up to a person of higher rank or respect. This is the meaning here. She is the judge of Israel, and thus the people ascend to her in that capacity. Verse 6, then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. Vatishlach vatikra le Barak ben Avinoam mikadesh Naphtali, and sends and calls to Barak, son Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. Without saying it, the implication is that she received a divine word to pass on as instruction. But more, what transpires implies that she has full authority to rule. She will appoint the commander of the army and direct him accordingly. But more still, he is considerably north of where she is, and yet he acknowledges her call and comes to her. Barak means lightning. Abinoam comes from Av, meaning father. The I is either possessive or locative, and Noam means delightfulness or pleasantness. Thus, the name means something like, my father is pleasantness or delightfulness or father of pleasantness or delightfulness. Kadesh means holy or sacred. Naphtali means my wrestlings or my twistings, but it has a secondary meaning of crafty. Verse 6 continues, and said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Her words are a Hebrew form of an emphatic proclamation. Vatomer elav halot siva Yehovah Elohei Yisrael, and said unto him, has not commanded Yehovah God Israel? In other words, Jehovah, the God of Israel, has definitely commanded, according to her words, which are, verse 6 continues, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. It is a difficult clause, very hard to understand what's going on here. Umashachta behar tavor, go and draw in Mount Tabor. The word mashach signifies to draw, such as drawing Joseph out of the pit or drawing lambs for the Passover, making a long draw on a horn, drawing a bow, and so on. It could be any of those meanings. The next verse will use the same word concerning the army of Sisera. Hence, it seems deploy, as used by the New King James Version, as in arraying the troops is probable. Thus, the next clause is instructive concerning this one. You will array your troops, and in your deploying, you will take 10,000 men. Mount Tabor is just a bit east of Nazareth. The name Tabor may come from Barar to purify or clarify and would mean purified, purifying, or clarifying. However, Strong's connects it to Tabar, meaning to break, and calls it broken region. As early as the 3rd century AD, Mount Tabor was considered the Mount of Transfiguration. However, a lot of people do believe that Mount Hermon is actually the Mount of Transfiguration. That's beyond me. I just report what I know. Verse 6 continues. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. Matthew Poole gives several reasons for naming these tribes. He says, partly because they were nearest and best known to Barak and therefore soonest brought together. Partly because they were nearest to the enemy and therefore must speedily be assembled. And partly because these had most smarted under their oppressor. Being a multiple of 10, it implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. As for Zebulun, it means glorious dwelling place. Verse 7, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. The New King James Version again rearranges the words. They begin with, Umashachti elecha el nachal kishon et sisra sar tseva yavin. And I will draw unto you, singular, unto river kishon sisra, commander, host, jabin. The word mashach, or draw, is used again. Hence, the idea of deploying forces in battle array seems to be what is indicated. The river Kishon is a bit south and west of Nazareth and a bit north and east of Megiddo. 
very close to modern day Afula, if you look on a map. The word translated as river, Nahal, comes from the verb Nahal, signifying to take possession. Kishon comes from the verb Kush, to lay bait or lure. Thus, it means snarer or place of snaring or ensnarement. It is an appropriate name for the moment. It next says in the singular, which here stands for the plural, ve'et rivko et hamono, and his chariot and his multitude. If all 900 chariots were deployed, the entire army with them would be rather sizable. Despite this, a promise from the Lord is given. Verse 7 continues, and I will deliver him into your hand. The verb is in the perfect aspect, un and have given him in your hand. It is a done deal. All Barak needs to do is engage the enemy. The Lord has assured the outcome. Despite this, Barak's failing to trust in this actually being a divine word shines forth in the next words. Verse 8, and Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Rather, the first responding verb is in the perfect aspect and said unto her, Barak, if you will go with me, and I have gone. If no will go with me, no, I will go. Of this Kyle, in line with numerous other, numerous others, ridiculously says, Certainly not for the reasons suggested by Bertho, namely that he distrusted the divine promise given to him by Deborah, but because of his mistrust of his own strength, which was such that he felt too weak to carry out the command of God. The guarantee is victory, regardless of his own strength. Kyle is saying exactly the same thing as Bertho, but denying he's saying it. The reason isn't that he doesn't trust the divine promise of the Lord. The reason is that he doesn't trust her words as a divine promise of the Lord. If she goes with him, then it will confirm that she believes the word she has said. In other words, a person may claim the rapture is going to be on September 25th, but if he keeps asking for people to give to his ministry so he can pay his bills and send his kids to college, his claims are obviously suspect. I mean, obviously. And the reason why I say that is because there was a guy back in 2012 and 2017, I think it was, saying the rapture is going to happen on September 25th. And he says, link below, my children need college funds. <laughs> why? If we're leaving in 30 days, why? <laughs> Likewise, this isn't a distrust of the Lord, or he wouldn't even go with Deborah. The aspect of the verbs shows this. First, if you will go with me, and I have gone. There is trust in the word if the communicator of the word is reliable. Or, and if no will go with me, no, I will go. There is no trust in the word because the communicator of the word is not reliable. Everybody see that? Just break it down. If you can't figure it out, break it down. I'm talking about when you're reading the Bible. Make a little syllogism out of it and it will always clear itself up. Despite this, there is a penalty for not trusting the commission that rested upon her. Has not the Lord spoken his word and is not reliable enough to pay heed? It is a tested and mighty sword. Open it up and give it a read. Has not the Lord confirmed his word? Again and again, he has done so. Therefore, let us strive to live in accord with this precious gift we have come to know. The Lord has spoken it out as a guide we can confidently place our full trust in it. And so let us determine and decide to glean from it every precious tidbit. Our second thought today is, and the Lord routed Sisera. It's verses 9 through 16. Verse 9, so she said, I will surely go with you. Keep thinking, who is she picturing? Something? Someone? A place? A moment in time, what is Deborah picturing? Vatomar haloch elech imach, and said, going, I will go with you. Her words show absolute confidence in the matter. She had received a divine word, and she had passed it on accordingly. Verse 9 continues, nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. Ephes, ki lo tifartecha al haderek asher ata holech, a cessation. For no will be your glory upon the way which you are going. The noun Ephes means exactly that, a cessation. 
In this case, it is a way of saying that this is a final word on the particular matter. Thus, it is usually paraphrased as something like, nevertheless. She will certainly go with him, but because of his peevishness, Barak has guaranteed that he will not be the one who is most remembered for the victory that the Lord will provide. Rather, and embarrassingly, verse 9 continues, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Barak has been commissioned to lead the host into battle. The battle will be engaged and won, but instead of him being given the ultimate honor for having won it, a woman will receive the greater glory. The thought is expressed in 2 Samuel 12 concerning such a victory. It says there, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and be called after my name. Instead of honor, a later accountant judges will explain the humiliating nature of Deborah's words. There it says in Judges 9, But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. The thing that tickles me about that is the Bible still recorded it anyway. And that's what we remember. Killed by a woman. Verse 9 continues. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Vatakam devrah vatelech im Barak Kedshah. And arose Deborah and went with Barak Kadesh word. Deborah is perfectly confident that the word she has received is reliable. Barak is now convinced as well. He has come to trust not just the word of the Lord, but the messenger of the Lord who gave it. Verse 10, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Vayazek Barak et Zebulun ve et Naphtali Kedshah. And cried out Barak, Zebulun, and Naphtali Kadesh word. The word here is not the same as in verse 6, translated as called. Rather, it is za'ak. It means to cry out. In this case, it implies for the people to hear and respond for battle, heading for Kadesh. Once gathered, verse 10 continues, he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went with him. Here's an idiom signifying authority. Vaya'al be'raglav, asarat al-fe'ish vata'al imod devorah, and ascended in his feet, 10,000 man, and ascended with him, Deborah. It is as if he is leading and the men are following along in his steps, being in submission to him. Every step he takes, somebody's following right in his steps. The idiom will be explained in verse 14, where it says, after him. There are no horses or chariots among them. Each followed in his steps while Sisera's vast and well-equipped army awaited them. But they had Deborah with them, and that means they had the certain word of the Lord assuring victory. With that, a new figure is introduced. When such a seemingly arbitrary introduction is made, it usually implies something important. Some important figure is actually being introduced. For example, in Genesis 22, a seemingly unimportant addendum is added at the end of the chapter. You got this whole thing about Abraham taking his son up to be uh, uh, sacrificed on an altar, you know, and all that's going on in chapter 22 of Genesis, and then it ends with these words. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, who is his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazel, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Betuel. And Betuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, Kaham, Tahash, and Maaka. And you wonder, why is that even in there? And yet this seemingly irrelevant passage becomes fully understandable in Genesis 24, which deals with the continuation of the line of promise through the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah. Likewise, what is next said will lead to the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy from the Lord. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses had separated himself from the Kenites. Rather, it says, And Heber the Kenite has separated from Cain, from sons Hobab, in-law Moses. 
The Kenites were a nomadic people who came out of the wilderness with Israel at the time of Moses. They were related to Moses by marriage. The term chatan or in-law is used. This can be a father-in-law, a brother-in-law, and so on. The word carries the idea of affinity through marriage in various ways. This person, Haber, separated himself from the other Kenites as nomadic people will do. The reason for stating this is because the Kenites were mentioned as being in the wilderness of Judah back in Judges 1, verse 16. Heber means associate, companion, fellowship, and so on, coming from the verb havar, to unite or join. Kenite is a patronym derived from Cain or Cain. That name is derived from Kana, meaning to acquire. Like when, uh, what was his name born? When Cain was born to Eve, she said, I have acquired a son with the Lord, Cain, okay? However, it is also etymologically connected to the word Cain or spear. To further complicate things, Jones's dictionary takes the meaning from Numbers 24, verse 21, tying it to the word Ken or nest. Thus, various names can be considered acquire, people of the spear, nestling, and so on. Cain or Cain bears the same possible meanings as Kenite. Hobab comes from Chavav, uh, to love. Thus it means cherished, loved, beloved, and so on. Moses means he who draws out. Of Heber it says, verse 11 continues, and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Za'anaim, which is beside Kadesh. Vayet aholo ad elon batsanim asher et Kadesh, and stretched his tent until Terebinth in Za'anaim, or until Elon Za'anaim, which with Kadesh. The meaning is that the area of his nomadic lifestyle took him as far as the Terebinth tree, which is in the area of Za'anaim, in the same area as Kadesh. Elon is an oak or a Terebinth tree, but that is also derived from Ayil, a ram. Then it is derived from ul, a word that gives the sense of strength. Za'anaim comes from tsa'an, to wander or travel about. Hence it means migrations, wanderings, or removals. Verse 12, and they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Vayagidu le Sisera ki Barak ben Abinoam har Tabor, and told plural to Sisera, for has ascended Barak, son Abinoam, Mount Tabor. The plural means that it was probably not Heber who told them. Sisera was referred to in the singular in the previous verse. It is rather a general statement that his men or someone aligned with him told of Barak's position. With this information at hand, it next says, verse 13, So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, Vayazek Sisra et Kal Rikvo, Tisha Meot Rechev Barzel, and cried out, Sisra, all his chariot, 900 chariot iron. In discovering that Barak is on the mountain, Sisra would be able to surround it and compel him to surrender. There could not be a long siege without a city filled with supplies to sustain them. And along with the chariots, verse 13 continues, and all the people who were with him from Haroshet Hagoyim to the river Kishon. The words refer to the vast plain on the bank of the Kishon that could sustain Sisera's chariots in battle. This is where he had planned on conducting the battle, and it would have been a highly effective place to do so. But he is drawn away from this choice area to go to Mount Tabor was exactly the plan set forth to trap him. And it worked. Verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Vatomer devora el Barak kumze hayom asher natan Yehovah et Sisera beyadecha. And said Deborah, Arise for this the day which has given Yehovah Sisera in your hand. Sisera is as a gift from the Lord to be defeated. All they need to do is engage the battle because the gift has already been bestowed. To assure him that this is so, she gives another emphatic proclamation. Verse 14 continues, Has not the Lord gone out before you? Halo Yehovah Yatsa Lefanecha? Has not Yehovah gone out to your face? In verse 6, she asked, Has not the Lord commanded Yehovah God of Israel? 
At that time, Barack doubted her words as being inspired. Now, he has no reason to not do so. She has accompanied him, and the battle was strategically ready. With the assurance of the Lord going before him, it could not but succeed. Verse 14 continues, So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. More precisely, it says, And descended from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men following him. The sudden rushing of Barak's men would render many chariots all but useless. They needed to be properly aligned and carefully prepared for an impending battle. Despite this, there would still be many chariots that might be able to carry out an attack. And yet Barak and his men left the higher ground and engaged on the plain. Chaos was sure to ensue. And it did. Verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. The wording here is very peculiar and it seems to not fit. Vayaham Yehovah et Sisra ve'et kalha rechev ve'et kalha machane lepi cherev lifne barak and confused Sisra and all the chariot and all the camp two mouth sword to face Barak. The phrase two mouth sword is usually associated with the act of directly killing the enemy, not as an overall phrase of battle as it is used here. John Lang paraphrases it by saying, in the conflict. However, the use of cherev is intentional, and it is certainly telling us something typologically. As for the word translated as confused, it is the same word, hamam, that the Lord used when he promised exactly this in Exodus 23. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion, hamam, among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. The word signifies to make a noise or move noisily and thus to cause confusion. This is ascribed to the Lord. And so whatever threw them into confusion, it is exactly what the Lord promised in Exodus 23. There was absolute chaos among the foes. Also, verse 15 continues, And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Vayered Sisera me'el ha-merkva vayanas be'raglav. And descended Sisera from upon the chariot and fled in his feet. This was probably an attempt to fit in with the rest of the people and not be identified as the commander. John Lang gives his impression of the battle. He says, it must have been his intention, in case Barak did not attack, to surround him on the mountain and thus compel him to descend into the valley. But before the terrible chariot force has well arranged itself, the Israelitish army, fired with divine enthusiasm by Deborah and led by Barak, charges down the flanks of the enemy and breaks up their battle ranks. Everything is thrown into confusion. Panic terrors ensue. Everything turns to flight. The great captain has lost his head. Of all his strategic plans, nothing remains. Only presence of mind enough has left him to seek salvation from destruction by not fleeing in his chariot, nor with the others. While Cicero was fleeing, it next says, verse 16, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Haroshet Hagoim. Ve'barak radaf achare harachev ve'achare ha-machane ad haroshet hagoim. And Barak pursued after the chariot and after the camp until haroshet hagoim. The enemy was pursued as far as the home of Sisera from where they came. And they were destroyed in the same area where they were supposedly to destroy Barak and his men. Verse 16 finishes with, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. The words speak of absolute victory for Barak. And fell all camp Sisera to mouth sword. No remained even to one. So much for going out with your troops. The only survivor at this time is Sisera. The enemy had been destroyed to the last man. Meanwhile, Sisera is heading in a northerly direction to find a safe haven in Hatsor. If he makes it there, he will be the only one to convey to Jabin the details of what occurred. For now, we must close in anticipation of completing the chapter next week. 
the one lesson that I will give you here is to tell you that I do not disagree with Barack's decision to question the integrity of Deborah. Unless he has previously dealt with her or was aware of her status as a prophetess. If he knew that already, then he was wrong. If he didn't, then I agree with him. There are innumerable people who claim divine revelation and a word from the Lord to this day. And yet there is no reason to believe any of them. The Bible is complete. It finishes with a note about the grace of our Lord Jesus and the word, Amen. We don't need any further revelation from the Lord. What we need has been provided. Not a single prophecy or supposed divine utterance since the completion of the Bible has had any bearing on what the church or those in it need to know. Hold fast to this word and be confident in it. Our lives will unfold exactly as they should without trying to pry into the things that God has not already given us in the Bible. Hold fast to scripture alone and you will do well. It's exciting. What an exciting adventure reading about Deborah and Barack in this army. I mean, I just, I read it and I just get so excited. I can't even pronounce my own words and my heart is beating out of me. It's just unbelievable. It all has typological meaning. The Lord is telling us something interesting. And it's about, as I said, I'm going to take you back. We started back with um, Othniel, and then we got up to uh, Ehud and Shamgar, and now we're up to uh, Deborah. It's all picturing time in redemptive history. As I said, I didn't realize this until I got to Judges 6, and I started typing Judges 6. And all of a sudden, I thought, I need to go back and review all the sermons to make sure I'm on the right page in my mind. And I look and everything is showing us redemptive history as the Bible records. What is Deborah picturing? Who is she picturing? Is it a moment in time? Is it a thing? Is it an object? Is it a person? Once you know that, the entire story makes sense. Even if the rest of it is complicated, my explanation is complicated next week. I'm not going to apologize for that. It took hours to figure this out. But once you know what Deborah is picturing. It all makes sense. If you don't get it great, you'll be ooh and ah when you hear. It's just so wonderful what God is showing us in this word. All right, our closing verse. Oh, wait a minute. Before I give you a closing verse, I want to give you an appeal. If you're sitting in here and you have never received Jesus, shame on you because every one of you has been a Christian for a long time, but not really a Christian if you haven't called on Jesus. You have to believe the gospel. That's what God wants from us. And if you're watching online and you've never accepted Jesus, time to do so. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. This is the simple gospel. That's all God asks us to do is to believe that simple message. It says, if you believe that, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of future redemption. This is what God would ask of you. I am a sinner. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus went into the grave with my sins. Jesus came out of the grave proving he had no sin of his own and proving that my sins are gone forever. Thank God for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Please believe that today. And good news, I uh, ordered more tracks because uh, I ordered a thousand of them, the big tall green ones on the wall back there. I ordered a thousand and they went really quickly. So I uh, went online to order more and it happened to be the last day of a big sale and I got 2,000 for about the price of 1,000. So we got a lot of tracks to hand out, folks. So I'll be folding those in the next six months and uh, as I fold some, I'll bring them in, grab a bunch, hand them out, put them, give them to people. You know, I go over to Culver's uh, to get a spicy chicken sandwich once in a while. They're really good. And uh, so I always take a track and I put a tip in there because they bring the food out to you. You wait in your car. And I, always put, and I have the money sticking out so they see it because I don't want them to just throw the track away and get some interested and then they go in and maybe they'll read the track. Be inventive. Get those out. People need Jesus, okay? Our closing verse comes from Psalm 83. It's verse 9. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon. Good stuff. Uh, next week, Judges 4, 17 through 24. Ooh, ah, what will it tell? When we are through, it's entitled Deborah, Judge of Israel. Part two. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 12th Judges Sermon. I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, 
and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, before I give you our week's question, I will tell you the Enda from uh, Ireland, uh, Ireland, yes, I want to make sure I got the right island over there. He emailed me, and he says, every time I hear Jay say that, I laugh, even though I know it's coming. So, you're giving people joy all around the world there, buddy. Okay, um, you guys failed me last week. I asked, what are the two figs? Remember, the two baskets of figs? And listen, this is... I can validate this because it's streaming online, okay? These guys are online and they're typing to each other, chatting while I'm giving the uh, sermon. Shame on them, but they're doing it anyway. Okay, as soon as I asked that question last week, within just a couple seconds, Sam Lesho had answered it on there. And uh, the moderator, the chief moderator emailed me and he said, that guy got it immediately. So hats off to Sam Lesho. And uh, I'm going to ask you a question based on the same thing from last week. Okay, but this is probably the first time I haven't asked something directly from the Bible. You have to know what it is, and the way that you would know that is by having listened to Bible studies or sermons, because I've said it in about a thousand of them. So here's the question. Raise your hand, because I think a few people will get this, because I've explained it in a lot of studies. If you don't get it, that means you are not paying attention in the studies. Okay, this week we are talking again about the two baskets of figs. I have explained the symbolism of the fig quite a few times during Bible studies, probably during sermons too. What is the symbolism of the fig as defined by me, not most people because they get it wrong. They've got a wrong impression of it. What is the symbolism of the fig in the Bible? It is very clear. No, everybody says that and it's wrong. Israel co-opted that to say that it means us and that is incorrect. No. It is a spiritual connection to God. Adam and Eve fell, and they tried to reestablish a spiritual connection by covering their sins. The two baskets of figs, the bad ones, you're off to, uh, you're staying here or in Egypt, there's no spiritual connection for you. But if you go off to Babylon, you're good figs, you will re retain that spiritual connection to the Lord. All the way through the Bible, the fig is very, very consistent. Jesus said, let no one eat from this fig ever again. When he just left the temple, he was making a comment about law worship. No spiritual connection. I am the way. The law is no longer a means of accessing me. I'm sorry, nobody got this wonderful apple butter for like the 10th week. I'm sorry. <laughs> I should send it to I should send it to Sam, but I'm not going to. Sam, you get a big hello, but I'm too cheap. I, I just love looking at this. Anyway, I know a couple people realize that after I said it, but that is what it means. It's very consistent when you read the Bible and you come to the fig, think about it, and it will always make sense. The Bible opens it. That's what I said. Listen to what I said at the beginning of this sermon. Um, when you encounter some part of the created order in the Bible, think about why it is mentioned. Why is the fig mentioned? It's key points throughout the Bible. It's always because it's demonstrating a spiritual connection to the creator. Okay. Um, uh, what do we have here? Deborah, judge of Israel, part one. When Ehud was dead, stiff as a board, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Haroshet Hagoim. He was a man of war. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, pretty swell. And for 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time, keeping things afloat. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. There her time was spent in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, This and maybe more, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, please understand. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitudes at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Oh, no, no, no. So she said, I will surely go with you. 
Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, her palm tree she was temporarily forsaking. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him just as they had planned. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zaanaim, which is beside Kadesh, so he could see the sights. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor. To Tabor he did roam. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. The line went on and on, and all the people who were with him, from Haroshet Hagoim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, just as they had planned. Then the Lord routed Sisera and all the chariots and all his army. Such was the output with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Haroshet Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left from that team. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the story of Deborah. Thank you for what it's telling us in redemptive history, both literally as a story and typologically as anticipations of the coming Messiah, Jesus, and everything associated with him. How great is your word that it gives us these wonderful multiple levels of understanding so that we can know when we're on right doctrine or when our doctrine needs to be tweaked because you've already shown us in advance. Thank you for the marvel and the meticulous nature of your word that we can delight in all the days of our lives. And may we do so. Thank you, Lord God, for it. And we praise you above all for Jesus, our Lord, who is the one displayed in it. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.